I figured you were going to be early because most professionals always show up like 15 minutes ahead of time. <laughs> but if I have like a comedian on, they're always like... The talent? Yeah, yeah. I'm not the talent. The, <laughs> no, 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 no. You're talented in many other ways. I'm many not, more important I ways. I may have talent, but I'm not the talent. Right. Yeah, yeah. This is Van Color. My name is Mo Amir, and today on This is Van Color, I'm joined by a specialist in infertility and egg freezing. She is doubly certified by the Royal College of Physicians and Surgeons of Canada in obstetrics and gynecology and in reproductive endocrinology and infertility. She obtained her medical degree from the University of Western Ontario, completing her residency and subspecialty training at the University of British Columbia. She's published research on in vitro fertilization, gynecological surgery, and ovarian disease. She's a clinical assistant professor at UBC. As a director at the Pacific Center for Reproductive Medicine, she was recently a recipient of the Business in Vancouver 40 Under 40 Award. You may have caught her on the Linda Steele Show, Global News, and very soon in McLean's Magazine. She is a leading voice in her field, and she will help you throw that gender reveal party of your dreams. She is Dr. Caitlin Dunn. Dr. Dunn, how are you? I'm fantastic. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you for being brave enough to talk about uh, women's health and about <laughs> infertility. Not everybody is. I'm, I'm here to learn, and uh, I appreciate you being here. I have to be honest, though. I'm a little intimidated. Um, the science of fertility, egg freezing, reproductive endocrinology, not exactly my wheelhouse. <laughs> Fair enough. You know, when I look out into the waiting room of, uh, of our clinic, mm -hmm. not a lot of the guys look comfortable sitting there. <laughs> they don't necessarily want to be there. But my job is to take all the medical information, distill it down, make it palatable. Mm -hmm. make it more comfortable. So hopefully we'll do that. And that's why you're here. Yeah, yeah exactly. I've, I've really enjoyed your work and I've enjoyed your advocacy in the media as well. And it kind of dawned on me that, you know, in this search for like the purpose of life, uh, we can ruminate and philosophize on our purpose, our meaning, our significance. But ultimately, like as a species, and I'm speaking in very general terms here, of course, we have one biological purpose, and that's to replicate, to reproduce. Everything else, safety, nutrition, society, is working towards this biological impulse as a whole, right? And it's even in the language of our politics and our culture, this idea of the world that we leave behind for our children. So in that context, it seems to me like while there's maybe a dialogue on child rearing uh, in the public consciousness, when it comes to actually making the children in our modern society, we don't really like to talk about it. Like, women will put their eggs on ice. Couples who are trying uh, to, to have a baby, you know, don't want to jinx it by telling people. Am I just completely removed from this world, or is there a stigma when it comes to talking about fertility and infertility? Oh, I think you're right on point. I think there absolutely is a stigma. Mm -hmm. We're making headway in that regard, but the traditional thinking has always been, well, in high school I was taught that if I have unprotected sex 
will get pregnant. That's what I was taught. Yeah. And so everybody <laughs> thinks, well, it's so easy to get pregnant. And I can't tell you how many times I've heard couples or friends of mine say, you know, I spent my whole life trying not to get pregnant. Mm-hmm. And now I'm trying and it's just not happening. Right. And so we have to remind ourselves about the facts around reproduction. And one of the biggest things is that even in the best of circumstances, let's take a couple, you know, in their 20s mm-hmm. who have normal eggs and normal sperm. The chance of getting pregnant that month is about 25% max. Really? Yeah. So that means in a given month, it's actually more likely that you're not pregnant than you are pregnant. Hmm. And so when couples come to see me and um, they're not pregnant and I say, well, your chances are 3% per month or 5% per month or whatever they happen to be, um, we have to keep in mind that it's not starting from 100%, (laughs) right? It's starting from 25%. Yeah, right. Right? Yeah. Yeah. So that's one of the biggest misconceptions. And the second one is that it's not always the woman's fault. And I spend a lot of time correcting Mm. this misconception. Women take a lot of this on Mm -hmm. themselves and they get blamed, you know, publicly and and privately, I think. And what we need to realize is that about a third of the time, it's the guy's fault. And about 50% of the time, it's at least in part the guy's fault. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it takes two to make a baby. Sure. Um, And... uh, and women, I think, are bearing too much of the burden mm-hmm. of the stigma of infertility. So so it sounds like this stigma stems from childhood indoctrination or education of this idea of, you know, don't have sex because you'll get pregnant. I mean, maybe. <laughs> I, I always, you know, so obviously I have a lot of colleagues, other doctors who work in medicine, right? Mm-hmm. And so... I like to use this analogy about expectations. So, mm-hmm. you know, if you take like a cardiac surgeon... And, and they fix hearts and they fix vessels, say, after a heart attack. The people go in with the expectation that they have a very serious problem. Right. And when they leave, you know, and they've been fixed, it's wonderful. When it comes to reproduction, we have the opposite expectation. Everybody thinks it's going to be so easy. Right. Getting pregnant is natural. It should be easy for everybody. So when people run into trouble, mm-hmm. they feel crushed and devastated and lonely and stigmatized. Right. And so really the facts are that one in six or 15% of couples will experience trouble getting pregnant. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, that's just that's just normal. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's what I do, right? That's what we deal with. Yeah. And it, it is interesting, like a lot of things in our society... A lot of the stigma and blame, even internally, is is on women, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's it it almost does seem like we do have to have that that conversation about how this is much more complicated and much more nuanced than than what we might think on from the outside, I guess. Yeah, for sure. I mean, women. <sighs> They are on a clock. And sure. this is an irrefutable fact. It's something that hasn't changed over decades and hundreds of years of history. So mm-hmm. men get to make new sperm every 70 days. In one normal sperm sample, there's usually 40 million, 100 million. You know, I've seen sperm samples with a billion sperm wow. in one sample. Hmm. Women are born with all the eggs they're ever going to have. And then those eggs they lose throughout life, and then when they're gone, from they're gone. The, from sorry, from the start. Absolutely, they don't. They don't get it. Like once they come out, once a, a female girl comes out of the womb, she's not going to generate any more eggs. No, unfortunately, wow. she has the most eggs she's ever going to have when she's actually just five months gestation in her mom's oh, uterus. Oh, gestation! Wow. Yes, <laughs> and then by the time she's born, she's gone from about six million eggs to one million by the time she's born. 
Interesting. And then you lose your eggs just by attrition. No matter what, no matter what you're doing, no matter if you're taking the birth control pill, if you're mm-hmm. pregnant, if you're breastfeeding, you're losing eggs all the time every month. And it's really frustrating and it's really unfair to, to women that I see because they say, you know, men don't have this clock mm-hmm. and women are <clears throat> supposed to meet somebody and get their education and have a family all in this kind of 10 to 15 year critical time period. Yeah. So I think because of the clock um, and because of that inequity and just the, the physiology, the biology of reproduction, mm-hmm. women have tended to take on more of the stigma. Yeah. And and, I, and unfortunately, it's been this consequence of a changing society and a changing culture, which has quote unquote involved or, or changed much more rapidly than our own biology. Um, I mean, I'm thinking of the idea of that women are having children later in life, mm-hmm. and that's much more accepted. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've never had as many methods of birth control uh, as we do today, and, mm-hmm. and apparently this will extend to, to men soon as well. Uh, singles and same-sex couples can be parents uh, through the use of donor sperm or donor eggs uh, in, in, I guess, what's called third-party uh, reproductive treatments, yep. right? Based on all, like, that's sort of the cultural change, but in terms of the science of fertility, how has the field of fertility and infertility changed over the last 10 or 20 years? Oh, man, it's so exciting. Um, there have been massive changes. That's why I went into infertility um, mm-hmm. and, and fertility treatment. So we have to take this back to the very first IVF baby. She's world famous. Her name was Louise Brown. She was born in London, and um, she turned 40. So the oldest IVF baby is 40 years old. Wow. So this is a very, very huh. new technology. And yeah. to be frank, when we first started, and I say we as a medical field, not myself personally, but when mm. we started doing IVF, it was very inefficient, meaning mm. that you needed to do a lot of treatments you know, to end up with that one baby. Fortunately, we've become much more efficient, mm-hmm. and we're getting better every single day. It's a huge multi-billion dollar industry worldwide and as a result there's a lot of research a lot of new technology and and a lot of need for for the treatments as well interesting now i'm curious about the the different demographics of people that are coming to your clinic what does that look like what does the mix of people look like yeah so uh at pcrm we've got uh offices in uh British Columbia, so in in uh, Burnaby, in Vancouver, and Surrey, and then mm-hmm. we've got another uh, freestanding IVF clinic in Edmonton, Alberta, and um, our average age in, in terms of the female patients in Vancouver tends to be in the late thirties, around thirty eight or thirty eight point five. Okay, um, and I think that is just a function of the fact that women are struggling to do all of these things in in a short amount of time. Right. right. So housing prices have been correlated with waiting to have a family. And certainly oh, we know in Vancouver yeah. that you, you want to save up for a house or a condo before you start a family, sure. um, as well as the competitive job markets and wanting to achieve your career. So, I mean, we see people from all different demographics, but uh, certainly women uh, in their late 30s tend to make up a good majority of mm-hmm. the patients we see. Um, and then you mentioned the other groups of patients who need help um, starting a family, and that would be like single women mm-hmm. who are looking to be parents on their own, for example, with donor sperm, or LGBTQ people mm-hmm. who need either a surrogate, an egg donor, um, or donor sperm. And so we serve you know, all populations of people. Wow, interesting. Mm-hmm. Now, um, as we've sort of touched on already, like in spite of how important this field is, 
in spite of how many more people are now seeking these types of treatments, there are a lot of misconceptions about infertility. And we touched on a few, uh, particularly that it's not all, all the woman's fault. Uh, there are certain, uh, uh, and, and it can be difficult to, to uh, get pregnant, as you mm-hmm, said. Like it's mm-hmm. not as easy as we, maybe a lot of us have thought. Um, are there any other misconceptions about infertility that, that you come across? Oh, yeah. Well, um, when it comes to Vancouver specifically, Mm -hmm. I think that um, women, you know, they do believe that I I do yoga and I eat healthy and I live well. And women certainly do not look their age in all cases. Sure. Um, But unfortunately, over time, as you get older... It's, it's just a fact that, that the eggs age with you. Mm-hmm. And um, there was a study at UBC that was done where they surveyed undergraduate students. And um, the large majority of the students expressed a strong interest in being parents one day. Sure. But they also said they weren't going to do that or they didn't need to think about that until their 30s or later 30s. So I think the point to take away from that information and, and from what I see every day is that There is a disconnect between what women or what couples want Mm -hmm. and what's, you know, biologically or physiologically possible, right? Right. And um, I don't think as as a society that we're doing enough to educate women and couples Mm -hmm. um, and and young men as well uh, about the biology of reproduction and about planning their lives in that way. when they can still do something about it. And so, I mean, that's why I love that you're doing this podcast and talking about this because <laughs> it gives us a chance to to spread the message like in a positive and educational and empowering way rather than like a fear-mongering and scare-tactic way, right? Ab- absolutely. And again, that's sort of what drew me to your work is uh, this is not in my wheelhouse, as I said, but it was just interesting. And it was this field that I'd never really given much thought. But I think it's, like I said, so central to who we are as as people that it's it's an important conversation to have on, on several different levels. Mm-hmm, but, mm-hmm. Um, we'll get into lifestyle factors in a bit, which I guess it doesn't sound like yoga um, helps that much. <laughs> but <Unfortunately. laughs> when we talk about fertility treatments, uh, what is the what is the menu of options here? Mm-hmm. Well, the the best thing you can do is see a fertility specialist mm-hmm. and. Um, and you can, I mean, I've written about this in the Huffington Post about there are certain things that you want to test before you're even thinking about being pregnant to make sure that everything is in the optimal range, namely vitamins, you know, immunizations, um, folic acid, things like that. Mm-hmm. When it comes to fertility treatments, I always tell patients natural is better, right? So we'll do everything we can to optimize your natural fertility. And that can be as simple as, you know, figuring out when you're ovulating, making sure that you're ovulating regularly. Hmm. Uh, We always test the sperm because like I said, you know, 30 to 50% of the time there's a sperm factor and sometimes that can be improved. Sure. Um, Make sure that the fallopian tubes are open. And if couples aren't conceiving, then we move on to fertility treatments. And so the most basic fertility treatment is called insemination or IUI. And I think there's a lot of patients who would kind of giggle in my office and say, oh, it's like the turkey baster. It's it's not exactly like the turkey baster, but really what it is, is oftentimes we'll give women um, a medication to get them to ovulate, right? And um, these days that medication would be called letrozole or fumara. And they may ovulate one or they may ovulate two eggs. Is that a fertility pill? 
It is a pill, yeah. Okay. So in the past, there was a pill called Clomid or Clomiphene or Seraphine. Okay. Um, and that was around since the 60s. It was very good medication, but it's been discontinued recently. So we've moved over to using this other off-label medication called Letrozole or okay. Primera. Um, but its use is safe, and it's endorsed by the Canadian Fertility and Virology Society. And so the goal of that pill is to get the woman to ovulate at least one egg regularly, but oftentimes she'll ovulate two. And then we will, on the day of her ovulation or the day after, we'll get a sperm sample mm-hmm. and we wash it so it goes through a, a filter and a, and a centrifuge gradient. And then that eliminates all the sperm that's not swimming very well, that's not shaped perfectly, and we get the very, very best swimmers. And they go in a tiny, tiny skinny catheter and they um, are passed through the cervix into the uterus. So what I tell couples is that, you know, there's an extra egg and the sperm get a head start and we try to get them a little bit closer together at the very best time of the month. Sure. The sperm still has to swim. The egg has to be there. Everything has to happen naturally. But that's as basic as it gets is, is the tablets and the IUI. Oh, okay. Inter- and then in, in vitro fertilization. Yeah. So, well. th- so that's the strongest treatment that we do. Yeah. And, you know, some, some couples do need that. Unfortunately, it is a very, you know, a popular treatment. But um, because it's so effective, a lot of people have become parents. A lot of babies, more than a million babies have been born worldwide because of IVF. Oh, interesting. So it really okay. is a miracle of, of modern medicine. But IVF is a lot more involved. So for IVF... And, and this is this is where I get really basic. Yeah. So before you get into the explanation, <laughs> yeah. I'm going to try to explain like what my idea of it and maybe I think what a lot of people think it is and maybe you can correct Perfect. me Perfect. I love it, yeah. Um, so in vitro fertilization, IVF... Uh, an egg is combined with a sperm, but outside of the body. Correct. Right? And I guess if you have a, a couple using their own egg and their own sperm, when you have that fertilized egg outside of the body, that is then implanted into the woman's uterus. Is that right? Yeah, I think you've got a pretty good grasp. So so my question is, and I think you touched on it a little bit in the, in, uh, insemin- the intrauterine uh, insemination part, what what exactly is being done outside the body with the sperm and the egg that can't or isn't being done in, inside the body? Right. Does that make sense? Yeah, like absolutely. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I love this question. Uh, and here and here's where you have to tell me if I'm doing a good job of taking all the medical information and making it palatable like I promised to do. So um, in vitro, you're right, stands for in a dish as opposed to in vivo, which stands for in the body. So okay. what happens is... Um, Number one, IVF works because it's a numbers game. So women will take injections, and I often say, you know, the little pen looks like an insulin pen. It's got a tiny little needle at the end, Mm -hmm. and she has to take these injections about every day for 8 to 12 days. And what those injections do is get her to make multiple eggs. So we're aiming for something like 8 to 15 eggs in an IVF cycle. That would be ideal, as opposed to, you know, when I just talked about making one or two in the IUI cycle. Now, of course, we can't let her ovulate all those eggs um, because, you know, we don't want her to have her own TV show. <laughs> I always like making that little joke. So um, the woman will take the injections. She'll come in for ultrasounds. We'll watch the eggs grow. When the eggs are ready, then we'll take them out of the body. Okay. And that's a minimally invasive procedure. A tiny little needle would go into the ovary and we kind of suction out the eggs. And then there's that's where the magic happens. So in our very high-tech, state-of-the-art lab, we combine the eggs and the sperm in a dish or in vitro. Mm-hmm. And there's two ways to do that. So the most basic way would be to put the egg in a dish and kind of sprinkle 50,000 sperm over the egg and let the best sperm win. <laughs> um, and that's called standard IVF. Okay. So that's what we use when the sperm is not the problem, right? Mm-hmm. Obviously, the sperm still has to swim and one of them will get into the egg and fertilize the egg. Sure. 
Um, a lot of the time what we need to do is called ICSI or I-C-S-I and that stands for intracytoplasmic sperm injection. What it means is that using a very high-tech microscope, the embryologist will take one sperm and inject it directly into the egg. So even wow. guys with extremely low sperm counts can have babies. Like I said, the normal sperm count would have 40 or 100 million sperm in it. Yeah. We can deal with, if we get 10 eggs, we need 10 sperm, right? So extremely low sperm counts um, can be used to, to fertilize these eggs. And then once the egg and the sperm are combined, they live in a very special incubator that's temperature and gas controlled with all the nutrients that the eggs need. And those little embryos would grow for about five days. Mm -hmm. And then we put one back in the womb. Yeah. That's a very easy procedure, and then the extra ones would be frozen. Okay. Interesting. That's That blows my mind. So you can take one sperm and, like, get it to fertilize an egg. Like yeah. Like, just that one single. Yeah. Wow. So I guess, um, and again, please correct me if I'm wrong, it, it sounds like what you're doing outside the body is um, really focusing in and giving them the best uh, circumstances through technology and, and through other advances to to fertilize, for the, for the sperm to fertilize the egg. Yeah, I mean, right? IVF was invented initially for women whose tubes were blocked. Oh, okay. So you remember Biology 101, the egg has to I come don't out remember of the Biology okay. 101. <laughs> Let's just go back. So you, you've got the ovary. The ovary releases the egg. That's yeah. ovulation. And the egg is supposed to travel through the fallopian tube. Okay, yeah. And the sperm is supposed to swim all the way through the cervix, through the uterus, and meet the egg in the fallopian tube. Now, some women have blocked fallopian tubes, and that can happen from... You know, an infection in the past, sometimes you're just born like that. It can happen mm. with mucus. So if the tubes are blocked, there's no way the egg and the sperm are going to get together. Right. Right. So we have to take the egg out and combine it and bypass the tubes and put the embryo back in the in the uterus. And that's why it was originally invented. And then in the 90s, when ICSI, or the sperm injection, came around, it really revolutionized things because then we needed very low levels of sperm. So even guys with severe male factor infertility could get pregnant with very low levels of sperm. Mm -hmm. And now IVF is, is commonly used for those things, like blocked tubes and, and sperm factors. But also because we make so many more eggs, it's also very effective for age-related infertility. Because if a lot of your eggs are abnormal, if you make more eggs, more chance you're going to get a good one. Right. And again, very basic question. Please don't laugh at me. What's the implantation process? Is that like a surgery or is that just kind of a like a visit to your uh, gynecologist? What's that like? Yeah. So what happens is we've got the embryos in this very um, delicate and controlled environment in our lab. Mm -hmm. And then um, it is quite precise. So we have to make sure that the uterus and the lining of the uterus, the word for that is endometrium, we have to make sure that that's receptive and it's the right thickness and everything. The actual procedure is very painless. It's more simple than a pap test, but it's it's very precise. So we use an ultrasound so we can hmm. visualize exactly where the embryo is going. And then a doctor with a lot of experience at doing this would, would place the embryo exactly in the right spot. And then we all cross our fingers and, and hope for the best. And, and hopefully the embryo sticks to the uterus and implants and the pregnancy test can happen as early as nine days later. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Interesting. Mm -hmm. <laughs> now, uh, there's also uh, a type of in vitro fertilization where surrogacy is is common, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. um, and I guess that's the use of implanting the fertilized egg into a surrogate, into mm -hmm. someone who's it's ne neither their it's not their egg, right? Um, when would this be the best option for someone, and when when is this method or practice common or used? Yeah, so. <laughs> The traditional use of the word surrogacy refers to actually when the woman uses her own egg oh, okay. and carries the pregnancy. 
Um, so that would mean she's carrying a pregnancy with her own egg. Um, and then, you know, she may deliver the baby and there may be, for example, a same-sex male couple who's in, who are the intended parents, right? right? Um, the other term would be a gestational carrier. So that would mean you would get the egg from, say, a, a third party, mm-hmm. fertilize it with a man's sperm, create those embryos. And then the gestational carrier would be the, the uterus that that baby would develop in. So that's why we call it three-party reproduction, because you've got the uterus, and you've got the sperm, and you've got the egg, and they're all coming from different sources. Um, We do a lot of that for uh, same-sex male couples who may have a friend who donates eggs, Mm -hmm. um, and they fertilize them with with one of their sperm, sometimes, you know, both, and they make different embryos with different sperm. Um, And then they'll have another friend who would volunteer to, to carry the pregnancy. Yeah. So in Canada, the laws around that, I mean... You know, they, they may change. There's an uh, MP house father who tabled a bill in May to 2018, and my partner and the Canadian Fertility and Geology Society were involved in um, in uh, producing that legislation. But okay. right now, it's illegal to pay for eggs or sperm or surrogacy. Right. So it's criminal, 10 years in jail, $500,000 fine. Whew. Yes. So you really do have to find an altruistic friend to give you the egg and somebody to carry the pregnancy hmm. and beyond you know reasonable expenses you can't pay that person to do so so right. as you can imagine it's a difficult market and um, you know our, our argument is that it's discriminatory right because lgbtq people by definition need either an egg or a sperm right and um and right now the cost is quite prohibitive to access those things and we're trying to make it more accessible in canada sure um just just a side note on that can we change the name gestational carrier to something like warm or like or heroic? Like it just sounds so cold and technical. And we're probably guilty of that too much in medicine by using these like clinical terms that don't sound at all. Yes. Well, I mean, just the idea of carrying someone's baby is Absolutely. like, you know, it should be inspiring. And, and and it is in real life. I have to tell you, it's absolutely inspiring in real life. When you see um, couples and their carrier, and sometimes this is used for, for, you know, heterosexual couples where the woman's uterus had to be removed, for example, for cancer, mm. or it's been damaged by scar tissue. It's, it's not able to carry a pregnancy. So um, we see these groups of people and it is absolutely inspiring and very warm and lovely to watch these these couples go through it because again in our society it has to be altruistic right right um so maybe we should think about that yeah yeah what what do you suggest Um, I don't know. I didn't have one planned because I didn't know that term. But like uh, I don't know, like queen queen bee or. Or Mama Queen, or I don't know, something that sounds cool. I will call MP Housefather, and I will ask him to put that in the legislation. Please. (laughs) Now, um, in vitro fertilization can also use frozen eggs, Mm -hmm. right? Uh, And from reading your work, it sounds like a lot more women are freezing their eggs at a younger age so that they have the option to have children at a later age. Um, As you said you know, men can generate sperm every 70 days. Was that right? Yeah. I mean, it's like basically they're making it every day, but it's kind of like a new batch. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, So a new batch every 70 days, but women have a finite number of eggs from the day that they're born. Mm -hmm. Um, 
but you brought up also this idea of uh, in your work in your previous work uh this idea of social egg freezing Mm -hmm. so what is egg freezing what is social egg freezing yeah so social egg freezing is certainly a passion of mine um and because I, I mean, I consider myself a feminist. I consider myself an advocate for women, you know, mm-hmm. in, in, in professions. And, and I want everybody to have the opportunity to have it all, right? A career and a family. Right. And um, egg freezing is one of those things that can help women in that regard. So mm-hmm. um, in late 2012, 2013, the American Society for Reproductive Medicine removed the experimental label off of egg freezing. So okay. prior to that, it was mainly women who were going to lose their fertility who were, who were freezing their eggs. And that was women, for example, with cancer who mm. were going to need chemotherapy or radiation. Once the experimental label came off, the floodgates kind of opened. And you saw couples like, uh, sorry, couples, companies like um, Google, Facebook, the American military started offering egg freezing to their employees as a Really? Perk. Oh, yeah. interesting. And I mean, so really what it means is that you have to go through an IVF cycle. So it's the same process of mm-hmm. taking those injections every day for 10 days, having the egg retrieval procedure. So that little needle goes in and sucks out the eggs. And then instead of fertilizing the eggs, we freeze the eggs at that state. Gotcha. Right? Okay. So they can be fertilized in the future with, say, a future partner sperm or future donor sperm, whatever she likes. Right. And so the most common situation I see is, is women who are in their mid-30s. Mm-hmm. They know that they want a family in the future, but they haven't met the right person yet. Right. And so they say, this is important to me, and they freeze their eggs. And then they have the option of coming back until they're 50 to use those eggs if they need to in the future. And it, it'll give them an, a, a better chance, say, when they're because the eggs are younger, of having a child when they're, you know, say, in their later 30s or 40s. Mm-hmm. Do, do you think, and that sounds amazing, like, especially as we as we are changing as a culture, I think that's great, as, you know, given the biological limits of, of women and the amount of eggs that they have. Do you think that conversation between maybe women in their late 20s or 30s or maybe even before, do you think people are having more of that conversation and whether they should do it or not? Or Yeah, I mean, I think we've seen it a lot more in the media. And, mm-hmm. um, and I think women are having that conversation. I can judge just by our practice. We've seen a huge uptick in the number of women freezing their eggs. Um, and that's because the technology is getting really good. Mm-hmm. So it's not a guarantee for their future, but it's a really good backup plan. And frankly, it's the best backup plan we have sure. right now. Um, and I think the more that the media talks about infertility, talks about egg freezing, talks about women's reproduction, the stigma gets decreased. And then employers say, OK, well, maybe we should you know, offer this as a benefit. Right. Um, and so... We're seeing women talking about it more, and we're seeing celebrities like the Kardashians and and Chrissy Teigen, and people talk about IVF and egg freezing and The, the Bachelorette. Um, <laughs> I was introduced to egg freezing through Whitney Cummings. Okay. Yeah, so she had talked about this uh, in her in a few different podcasts and interviews she did, and then also in her stand-up she talks about that, which I had never really heard of this idea before. But it is through, yeah, for sure, the media and celebrities that that at least I think people are being introduced to the idea or this option exists. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, it, it's available to everybody. Um, it is expensive. And so I think mm-hmm. that's a big barrier for women coming in to freeze their eggs. The ideal time to freeze the eggs physiologically is when you're 34. Um, we do do it oh, up okay. until 40. Um, but obviously the, the eggs are really at their prime. So you kind of get the most, you know, you get the best eggs, you kind of get the most bang for your buck when, you, when you're 34. But... 
there are some women at 34 who say, well, you know, I may meet somebody and I never, I may never need those eggs, right? So you have to balance out, okay, hmm. well, what's the chance that I'm never going to need them and I'm going to spend this money unnecessarily versus getting the very best eggs at the very best time. And so because egg freezing is a, you know, $10,000 process, wow. um, not everybody wants to make that investment and, and, and fair enough, right? Yeah. So 34 is the best age to, to freeze your eggs. Like I would have thought the younger, the better. Like if you were 19 or 20 or I don't know. Yeah, yeah, probably eggs. I mean, if we look at uh, lots of studies over time, the, probably the best age for reproduction is around 26 or 27. Okay, interesting. Um, however, there's not a huge difference between your egg quality when you're, say, 26, 27, 28, and 31, 32, 33, 34. So you might as well give yourself that time mm-hmm. to you know live your life. And if you meet someone, if you have a family naturally – then wonderful and you never need egg freezing. Probably between 34 and 37, if having a family is important to you, I mean, obviously, if you have the means to do it and and, um, and you don't have anything in the immediate horizon where it looks like you want to, to be a parent or can be a parent mm-hmm. in the next few years, then 34 to 37 is when you should think about doing it. Okay, interesting. So th- 35 is like that drop-off almost, it sounds like. Yeah, I mean, I always tell people, well, you don't fall off a cliff when you're 35. We don't panic. <laughs> but things do start to change. Sure. Yeah. Fair enough. Now, now let's get into that cost. You said, so it's it's $10,000. So is it... Uh, is it a one-time fee, or are you are you paying rent for a, like a fridge? And I, I'm not saying that insensitively. I'm yeah. actually generally curious. Like, mm-hmm. what's the storage cost of keeping your eggs frozen? Yeah. So presently at PCRM, the actual cycle fee to freeze your eggs is seven thousand dollars, and most women need medications in the range of you know three, maybe five thousand dollars, because again the medications aren't cheap. So if your office, um, your work, your third-party um, ex- insurance doesn't doesn't pay for those medications, mm-hmm. then you're probably going to be out of pocket to make the eggs and put them in the freezer about ten to twelve thousand dollars. Wow! And then the storage fees are minimal per year after that. So you know, presently our storage fees are two hundred fifty dollars a year to keep them frozen. Okay, so pretty reasonable on the storage fees, but certainly that upfront cost is is quite high. Yeah. And what's so? Let's compare that cost to. Just out of curiosity, to in vitro fertilization, the whole cycle, not freezing eggs, but just going fresh eggs, what is what is in vitro fertilization cost? Yeah, so the IVF cycle is going to be just under $10,000, and that's because of the extra work involved in fertilizing the eggs, growing the embryos in the in the incubator, right. and checking the embryos, and then freezing the extra embryos and doing the transfer. Okay. And the medication costs are usually about the same. So I usually tell patients in IVF cycle, including medications if they're not covered, is about a $15,000 process. Wow. Okay. Unfortunately, MSP doesn't help with that. Sure. And, and we'll get into that in a second. Um, and, and to be clear, even though the technology is getting better, IVF isn't a sh- 100% sure thing. Right. No, it's really good, but mm-hmm. it's not a guarantee. And so, does it cost fifteen thousand dollars for each try? It depends if you make extra embryos. So, I oh, always tell okay. patients my goal would be that you would have extra embryos in the freezer, and that represents like you know another try if it doesn't work the first time, mm-hmm. or it may represent a second child in the future. Right. If you yeah. have a baby and you've got embryos in the freezer, and you come back to see me, you know, three years later or two mm-hmm. years later. Um, then we can transfer one of those. So what's the cost of, um, let, let's say the f- the first cycle doesn't work, but you have these extra embryos, you refertilize, or I guess you fertilize a new embryo or a new egg, uh, implant that egg. Uh, what's that cost? What does that second try cost, I guess? So we would fertilize all of the eggs at the initial 
cycle. Oh, you would? Okay. All of the embryos. And then we would put one back or two back in some cases. And then the extra ones go into the freezer. And those can stay in the freezer. They're frozen in liquid nitrogen. It's 196 degrees Celsius below zero. And they sit there. They don't get freezer burn. Hmm. Um, So if you come back and you're 37 and your embryos were made when you're 34, then you've got a much higher chance of success with those frozen embryos. So we would take one of those embryos out of the freezer, goes through a thawing process, make sure the lining of the uterus is good, and gently place it inside. So like... Presently, don't quote me Canada-wide on sure, cost, but presently sure. at PCRM, the cost of that is $1,500. Okay, interesting. Um, and, and, and I guess, as we talked about, here in British Columbia, uh, MSP does not cover these treatments, and they are quite expensive. Uh, but MSP does cover visiting a fertility doctor? So you can get, you're covered to visit a doctor but not to get the actual treatments. Is that that right? Yeah, that's correct. So when couples um, or individuals come to see me, that consultation, including the um, or most of the blood work um, and the examination to see what's going on, what is the cause of the infertility, what kind of treatment do you need, all Mm -hmm. of that would be covered by MSP. Okay. Um, But when it comes to doing fertility treatment, Anything um, that we do in our in our clinic, unfortunately, is private pay without uh, any help from MSP, and the same is true in Alberta. Interesting. Yeah, <laughs> I don't. Uh, I guess I'm not clear why they would cover the visit but not the treatments. <laughs> Gosh, I mean, I wish they would cover the fertility treatment because mm-hmm. it's heartbreaking. I mean, as a as a doctor. And like I said, I'm an, I'm an advocate for women, and I really believe that everybody should have the opportunity or the shot to have a child if they want one, mm-hmm. because they're so wonderful. They're such a blessing. Um, and obviously, not everybody can afford ten or $15,000 worth of fertility treatment. Right. I think there are provinces that, you know, Ontario being one of them, that will cover um, a cycle of IVF in the past Quebec. Interesting. That, that may happen again. I think it, you know, it does have to do with provincial government initiatives. Mm-hmm. Um, but presently, the BC government, you know, even for fertility preservation and cancer patients, doesn't uh, doesn't subsidize that cost. Hmm. It, it almost seems like it's a, it's an equity argument, right? Like whether it's gender equity because of the biological limitations of women versus men. Um, sexual orientation equity, uh, and I guess also wealth equity in, in terms of, you know, only people with certain means can afford and, and, and uh, have access to this, to this amazing technology and these amazing treatment, which again, as I mentioned at the start of the show, is so key and uh, central to, <laughs> to us as a species, right? So is there that equity argument for, for, for coverage on uh, fertility treatments? I absolutely see your point. I mean, I I think that the government, I don't want to put words or thoughts in their head or words in their mouths, but I think they're constantly trying to balance, you know, what to pay for and fertility treatment is very expensive and there's mm-hmm. never enough money to sure. go around in our healthcare system. As a fertility doctor, I absolutely believe that infertility treatment is worthy of coverage. Mm-hmm. The couples that I see they don't. They didn't choose to be infertile. They don't want to be infertile. Like I said, LGBTQ people, um, they don't have another option. So it is unfair that yeah. we're not helping these people um, financially. You know, create a family. Hmm. 
Well, I mean, hopefully that changes. And, and I, I do love that you're a big advocate for that. And again, something that I had no idea existed or was out there. But you're, you know, you have this cause and uh, it is quite interesting. I, I heard you on the, the Linda Steele show and you, you made the case for why this should be covered uh, by the government. And it was really interesting because they did like a call-in section afterwards. And uh, many callers, mostly male, uh, seemed to be quite upset <laughs> at the very notion of what you were advocating. Uh, I think someone even called it a, a lifestyle choice. Um, and as I said, you know, I think this is such a core biological impulse for our species in general. And when we look at Canada and our birth rate of 1.6 births per per women in this country, it's quite low. I mean, mm -hmm. it's even lower than the United States, which I don't think we realize. And it just strikes me as really odd that there would be this ferocious pushback. And I mean, we can talk about the costs and, and have a policy debate, but just the way that some people shut it down immediately. Where is that coming from, do you think? Yeah, on the Linda Steele show, she asked me specifically about egg freezing. And like I said, it's something I'm really passionate about. And I would love if if the government um, would provide funding for that. I think it is separate from infertility, right? Sure. However, um, most of the critics, if we're going to talk about social egg freezing, most of the critics would say, well, women should just get pregnant in their biological prime. Just get pregnant when you're 28. <laughs> And my argument is by far the number one reason that women delay having children is they haven't met the right partner. Mm -hmm. So the women who sit across from me and are talking about freezing their eggs, they're in their mid-30s, they may be professionals or they may have taken time to you know, travel, pursue education. Um, they would love to have met the right person and had a family by now. Sure. Um, so it's not as simple as have children in your biological prime. For many of the people I see... That just wasn't an option for them. Yeah. Now, when it comes to infertility, infertility is a disease. It's a medical condition, and it's recognized by the International Classification of Diseases. So right. it's absolutely worthy of treatment. Mm -hmm. And um, because a lot of the treatments are cost prohibitive, yeah, I mean, I think it's probably more of a policy debate, but there's always people who are entitled to their own viewpoints, right? <laughs> Fair enough. That's why we live in a democratic society. Yeah, absolutely. And it strikes me as so funny that on one hand – our culture has really ingrained in us this idea of having children at the right time and with the right person and making sure that, you know, you're ready for it. But then at the other time, at, at, there's this other pushback saying, well, no, you know, biologically you have to have it at, at the right time. And, and those two things don't often line up. Yeah. But, but there's this expectation that they should. Yeah, I mean, you don't, yeah, you don't need to get a permit to have children, Right? right, like you said, it's something that's that's really you know fundamental um, to our species. It's it's tough. There are so many different life circumstances that exist, and we're so fortunate to be in Canada where where we support so many different ways to be a family and have a family. Mm -hmm. And I'm a big advocate for all of those things. Um, but uh, but unfortunately, because of the cost, some people who probably desperately want to be parents won't at the present time, have an opportunity to try that. Mm -hmm. I I just have a random question. I don't know if you would know this or not, because it's not technically fertility. Um, is, is Viagra and Cialis, are they covered by MSP? 
Well, they would be medications. Okay. So MSP doesn't cover medications right. for, for right. young people. Okay. So, uh, so it would be like, you know, if you had insurance, insurance or, like Great yeah. West or Blue Cross or one of those ones. Right. Do, do, ins- do and, and you said some employers cover fertility treatments. Does any, how, how is it, how's the insurance coverage like, generally speaking? In for my, health insurance, yeah. So in my experience, health. it's pretty limited for the actual procedures. Right. Um, that would be something that'd be like employer specific. And like I said, some of the most progressive companies are offering it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, and again, I don't want to put words in their mouth, but I think it's a really good recruitment tool for particularly like industries, for example, tech industries that they want to hire more women to yeah. work in technology. Um, but these women, especially the, the highly trained and talented ones are coveted and they're limited. And Mm -hmm. so if you're able to offer a perk like egg freezing or fertility treatment in the workplace, it sets the tone that this is a fertility friendly workplace, first of all, and it ends up being a perk that's worth, you know, 10 or $20,000 to that woman. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. So again, the critics would say, well, you're just trying to keep her at work. You're trying to delay her childbearing. Mm. You're trying to force her to work instead of having kids. And in my experience, that's just not the case. Right. Yeah. So you <laughs> you wouldn't see a a, a surge of, of people heading to have kids if uh, if this was covered. Maybe not. Maybe not in this like exponential. Like people would have kids because they want kids. Is what I'm saying. Yeah. Well, we know that in Quebec when they covered IVF, there's a lot of people who needed it. Um, you know, the rates of doing those treatments went up two and three times. Right? Okay. So there's yeah. a lot of people who need it, who want kids, who can't afford it. Right. That's what I mean. Yeah. yeah. Those people will be going for it. not couples who are just like, yeah, we should just have another kid or. Yeah. <laughs> Well, doing it naturally, I say, is always the best way. Fair enough. Um, there was also another caller on that show uh, who said that, you know, before you go into any of these treatments, maybe you should try hypnosis. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I did hear that. Is is that a technique that's being uh, thrown around in, at your clinic? Uh, that's not. <laughs> I don't want to laugh because I'm not a, I'm not a hypnotist. So I actually, I, I have no experience or knowledge about whether hypnosis is helpful. Uh, at least in the conventional medical literature, it's not a recognized sure. treatment for infertility. Sure. I've, you know what? I've been hypnotized. Uh, I, I will 100% vouch that hypnosis is real. I don't know if you could change your physiolo- uh, physiology through hypnosis, though. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I thought that was interesting. I, I don't know if they screen the callers. Like, <laughs> I don't. I th- well, I think, you know, it was fun. We were talking about it right now. Yeah, so. yeah there you go. Um, so, so as we talked about a little earlier, uh, male factor infertility is uh, the single most common cause in infertility. Correct. So when I learned about that in, in doing research and prep for this show, uh, I was a little worried. But then I realized, like, I do a lot of yoga. I drink lots of kombucha. I'm buying walnuts in bulk. <laughs> and if you had done like an ocular scan on me, you'd see like my chakras so aligned. <laughs> so what else should I be doing as a basic bro to ensure that I'm as fertile as possible for yeah. when the time's right? Right. Okay. So um, the, the most important thing you can do is don't smoke. Okay. Smoking is really bad for fertility. Hmm. It makes your sperm lower count. It makes the sperm slower. Obviously, smoke contains all kinds of toxins that can damage the DNA. Right. So probably the single best thing you can do for your sperm is don't smoke. Um, the second best thing you can do is don't drink excessive alcohol or take drugs. Because okay. those things 
it stands to reason, but sometimes we have to remind ourselves that those things are bad for sperm. Sure. Um, now, because sperm is... And does this include all types of drugs now with the legalization of marijuana? Of marijuana, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I just wrote an article for the Huffington Post about this. And um, in reviewing all the literature for that article, there is not a lot of literature on marijuana and fertility and sperm. There is some. Um there seems to be a lot of literature from the 70s, uh, and those studies, like by our standards today, are, are not as high quality. Mm-hmm. There was one really good study where they took sperm and, and they looked at it in a dish, and they exposed it to low, medium, and high quantities of THC. Okay. That's the, the, the um, high-inducing component of marijuana. Mm-hmm. And what they found was that in all cases, it did reduce the motility of the sperm, so it made the sperm slower. Right. Um, and particularly in sperm that was kind of borderline quality to begin with, you know, it was more than 50% reduction in the movement of that sperm. So it certainly does appear to make the sperm slower. Sure. Um, it certainly does appear to have an effect. But there are other studies that have looked at um, surveys of populations of people. Mm-hmm. And they have people report, you know, are you trying to be pregnant and how long have you been trying to be pregnant and various lifestyle things like do you smoke r- marijuana mm-hmm. um, or use any of the cannabis products. And it didn't seem, in, in at least in one of the largest and best done studies of that type, that people took any longer to be pregnant when they reported that they used marijuana even daily. Oh, okay. So... It's really hard to say. I think the jury is still out on that. Sure. I think we want more research in that regard. But my, you know, my advice to patients is better to be safe than sorry. Yeah. Um, you know, it, just because if you're looking to be pregnant, like I said, you're at an advantage. The sperm is going to be regenerated every couple of months. If you could take a break from, you know, drug and alcohol use. Makes sense. To get yeah. the best quality sperm. Sure. Um, then that would be ideal. And um, I've heard... And I guess this falls under drugs, but then uh, steroids, testosterone therapy, that that type of thing doesn't help. Oh, I'm so glad you brought that up. So there is a huge misconception out there. If you take testosterone injections, like mm-hmm. testosterone therapy to, you know, bulk up and be at the gym, mm-hmm. it will probably drop your sperm count to very low, if not zero. Wow. In most cases, it goes to zero. So testosterone therapy is contraceptive. Oh, so a lot okay. of guys think that their sexual function is is um, is enhanced by taking testosterone and therefore their fertility is enhanced, but it's actually the opposite. So if you're on testosterone therapy and you're trying to start a family, stop the testosterone therapy. And isn't that because you're, uh, you're taking an ex- exogenous or external testosterone, so your body's just like, okay, we don't need to create exactly. it Exactly. Uh, yeah, perfect, yeah. So there is a hormone that comes from your brain, mm-hmm. and it's called FSH. And that hormone travels down to the testes and says, make me sperm mm-hmm. and make me testosterone. So if you give yourself testosterone, your brain says exactly that. We don't need any more testosterone, so we'll just shut that down. But that shuts down the sperm making as well. Wow. Okay. There we go. <laughs> um, okay. Well, I, well, okay. I think I'm in good, I'm a good spot. Yeah, I'll keep those chakras in the line, and I'll take your advice. That's that's very <laughs> handy. Um, you, uh, we did touch on this uh, at the start as well. Anything for women that you would maybe recommend if they are looking to get pregnant? What what sort of lifestyle things? Is it the same, or is it anything maybe added on or different? Yeah, I mean all the same stuff. Don't don't smoke. Um, you know, don't 
do drugs and drink excessive alcohol, everything in moderation. So, you know, I often get asked about caffeine, exercise, Mm. those things in moderation are absolutely fine. Up to two cups of coffee or 300 milligrams a day of caffeine is fine. Sure. Um, Taking a a multivitamin or a prenatal vitamin that has folic acid is the best thing you can do. And then um, maintaining a healthy lifestyle, like a healthy weight, Mm -hmm. um, balanced diet. Um, I often get asked about stress and whether that plays an important role in infertility. Certainly, I don't think excessive stress is good. So anything you can do to to moderate that. However, stress, we don't believe it's absolutely contraceptive. So it doesn't mean that you're not going to be able to get pregnant, um, but but it may have a negative impact. Okay. Yeah. Fair enough. Should women also be eating walnuts by the handful? (laughs) Um, Does that help them too? You know, the the most important thing is to just eat a balanced diet. So if you are vegetarian or vegan or you have dietary restrictions, then um, then you need to supplement. But people who eat a relatively balanced diet in general don't need too much vitamin supplementation. The main vitamins they need are folic acid, which I said is 0.4 milligrams a day or one milligram a day is safe as well. Mm-hmm. Um, everybody in northern climates... Um, needs vitamin D yeah. supplementation. So 800 or 1,000 units of vitamin D supplementation will help. Um, and then calcium if you don't have an adequate calcium intake. Sure. Um, some people choose to take omega-3s, and there's some evidence that they may you know, create children that uh, if they take them throughout pregnancy have less asthma, so those things are oh, safe. Oh, interesting. Okay. But otherwise, you don't need to take you know, a whole pharmacy full of vitamins every day. Just eat a balanced diet and Fair and enough. take those few things. You really haven't endorsed this walnut idea. Should I not be <laughs> buying these walnuts? Where do we stand on this? Is this helping? I do not have a good walnut randomized controlled trial <laughs> to cite for you. Spoken like a true doctor. Yes. Um, before I let you go, uh, I need to put your uh, your education to, to more use one last time. Gender reveal parties. Tips? someone's throwing one I mean I'm sure you've you've been you've helped so many people get there that's true yeah yeah so um you know I always like the surprise birthday party that's what I used to call it when I delivered babies and the babies uh the mom and dad didn't know if oh it was a yeah voice it's kind of like surprise um <laughs> yeah gender reveal party super fun and we can do them even earlier now because um with this NIPT or NIPT test it stands mm-hmm. for non-invasive prenatal testing it's actually a blood test for the mom and the little pieces of placental DNA that have broken off as early as nine weeks of pregnancy can be taken out and sequence that DNA and you can say whether the baby is a girl or boy as early as nine weeks. Whoa. Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. Super fun. So huh. um, I would say that, you know, again, that's private pay. That's not covered by MSP sure. in most circumstances, but it's really, really popular. And then you can, you know, start shopping as early as you know, 10 weeks pregnancy. <laughs> I love that. Well, on that note, uh, Dr. Dunn, I never thought I'd be interested in this subject, but uh, certainly I've, I have so much to learn. And, you know, we didn't even get into gene editing or anything like that, which I don't know if you guys are into CRISPR or, or doing anything. Well, right now there's supposed to be a worldwide moratorium on doing that, except oh, for that okay. one scientist in, I mean, at least on human embryos, except for that one scientist in China who took it upon himself to go ahead and Edit, uh, edit some IVF embryos, but he's, right. as far as I know, I think he's in hiding or he's disappeared presently. <laughs> well, again, so much to talk about in that realm, but even what we just talked about 
very enlightening. I learned a lot, uh, dispelled a lot of myths, and and uh, I appreciate how you are distilling these very important and very complicated at times uh, issues into very simplest, uh, simple and digestible ways. Well, I really appreciate you having me and calling attention to this issue. My pleasure. And I really hope that people come away from this thinking like, you know, infertility is it's not my fault there mm-hmm. are treatments out there and it's something that i can talk to my friends and family about and hopefully get that support absolutely now if people want to learn more about you or the pacific center for reproductive medicine uh, where should they go how do they look you up so at pacificfertility.ca that's mm-hmm. our website and we have a section of the website dedicated to media so all of the articles for example for having to post or globe and mail or um, like you said, the Linda Steele Show, Global News, things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, those would all be there So for, for education. And then we've got some great videos that we produced as well. So rather than going to Dr. Google, just go to pacificfertility.ca, <laughs> and there's some good literature and videos on there. Cool. Well, uh, again, I appreciate you being here. Thanks very much. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, she is the co-director of the Pacific Center for Reproductive Medicine and as the topic of infertility and the cost of infertility treatments grows in the public discourse in this country, I think you'll be seeing and hearing a lot more from her in the future. She is Dr. Caitlin Dunn, and I'm Mo Amir telling you that in a city where you can be anything, be colorful. Peace. <laughs>